0: This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The Federal Information Watchdog is recommending, is calling for the Prime Minister's office and the offices of cabinet ministers to be included under the Access to Information Act. I'm wondering if you will honor your promise to bring your office and those of your cabinet ministers uh, under that legislation. In 2017, Uh, We put forward uh, the most significant renewal of the Access to Information Act uh, since uh, it was created in the 1980s. We strengthened it, we expanded it. Uh, Right now, there is a review process ongoing that the uh, Information Commissioner has contributed to, and we're going to allow that review process to continue and uh, make recommendations about how best to move forward. It may be true. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said last year, that the government once introduced significant reforms to Canada's Access to Information Act. But it's also true that the law currently exempts his office from disclosures. It also exempts his ministers. It also exempts cabinet confidences. And for pretty much anyone that tries to make use of the system, they typically find that it's broken long delays, widespread redactions, and an information commissioner facing a record number of complaints. Carolyn Maynard is trying to do something about that. She's Canada's information commissioner, and she's been calling for more legislative reforms, more resources, and most of all, leadership within government departments to prioritize transparency and access to information. Commissioner Maynard joins me on the podcast to discuss the current system how exceptions are often used too aggressively to limit public access, and what can be done to fix these problems. Commissioner, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for uh, welcoming me.
0: Oh, I'm I'm so glad you've taken the time uh, to join. You know, I I probably should start by noting that. I'm a pretty active user of the access to information system in some of my research and have even filed the occasional complaint with your office. I have to say that every few months it seems that I get some correspondence from an ATIP officer that ultimately leads me to pretty much shake my head at what seems like incredible delays or huge numbers of redactions. And I'll tweet out yet another. The ATIP system is broken tweet. And it always gets, I have to say, quite a lot of response. So uh, I'm really glad to have someone on who's trying to fix that system. Um, you now, before we get into some of the problems and potential fixes, I thought we could start a little bit with some of the basics. You know, how can you describe a little bit the Canadian system, how it's supposed to work? What are Canadians able to ask for? How do they go about doing so? Uh, what government departments or agencies are subject to the law and how they're so how are they supposed to respond? Essentially, sort of an access to information 101, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big question. So um lots of information. So since 1983, uh Canada has a Access to Information Act that allows our Canadians and anybody actually that resides in Canada to request information that is under the control of our federal institution. So basically this is every federal departments institution agencies um that is a federal uh, institution uh, basically and and it citizens have a right to uh, to ask for information whether it is a videotape uh, a recording uh, it could be a decision uh um, in paper, research paper contracts. So it's very, very wide. And uh, the only exception to that is the Act provides some uh, exclusions and uh, exemptions. So you may obtain some information that is redacted or, you know, blacked out, as we, we say. Um, the institutions have 30 days to respond to an access request made by a, a citizen or, or a Canadian. And, but they, they do have a right also to ask for an extension, and there's some requirement for that. But uh, if they ask for, uh, if they have a valid extension reason, they can extend that 30 days uh, from the start. Um, and um, if you're not satisfied with a response from them, either because it, you feel that you are entitled to more inf- information or some information is missing or the timeline that it took to respond or it's to respond, um, they can uh, lodge a complaint uh, with my office. So that's where um, the office of the information commissioner comes into play.
0: Right. Okay. So that's, so that's where you enter the picture. Things obviously don't always go according to plan. What happens when, when one of those complaints lands on your desk or at your office?
1: So, uh, so requesters who are not satisfied, like I say, with a, a response or with the timing of the response, uh, they can lodge a complaint to my office. Uh, they have 60 days to, to do so. And we are basically the first level of independent review. So my office sees everything. We get the record from the, the institution and we see what was disclosed to the requester so we can compare the two documents and see if we agree with either the exemptions or the exclusions that were uh used to redact the information uh or we can uh, start investigating as well the um the reason behind the timelines that it uh, it is taking to respond why are the institution late why what's going on and and this is the bulk of our in our uh our requests or complaints i must say uh, because right now there is so many requests and uh, institutions are overwhelmed so timelines are becoming longer and longer and um and that's why we're getting so many so many complaints in my office but i have the power to uh to request the information to uh, even order the production of the of documents um so basically it's like a a small uh, inquiry uh, tribunal, and we issue uh, reports with uh, either recommendations or orders at the end of the investigation.
0: Okay, so uh, huge numbers of, of requests going into the system that are leading to large numbers of complaints at your office. And I have to say, it, at our recent House of Commons hearing, you offered what I thought were some pretty staggering numbers in terms of the number of complaints that that you're now receiving within your office uh can you can you I guess repeat what some of those numbers are like right now
1: yeah unfortunately like i said at the athlete committee um uh, we're beating the records but not in a good way um since my the beginning of my mandate i was appointed uh, as uh, as the commissioner in 2018 and uh, we are seeing uh the numbers of, of complaints Going up every year. I think the pandemic, the uh, the COVID uh, situation, uh, definitely didn't help. But uh, last year, we registered uh, about seven thousand complaints, which was seventy percent more than the previous year. Um, so this year, so far, we have uh, we're seeing uh, the the increased continuing. So we are estimating that we may. Um, reached the the nine to 10,000 complaints uh, in 22, 23. And um, I guess it shows that uh, Canadians are aware of their rights of access and they're asking for more and more information. But unfortunately what it shows as well is that our uh, federal institutions are not equipped to respond to that demand. And uh, unfortunately it results in uh, a a huge increase of, of, uh, of complaints to my office.
0: Yeah, the numbers—the numbers are pretty amazing, I have to say, and uh, and, and it, it is good that people know about it. But uh, frustrating when we see the the challenges that the system mm-hmm. is, is really breaking under. Yeah, you, you know, at that at that ethi hearing, you responded to a question from an NDP MP Matthew Green by arguing that that the system is fundamentally about freedom and democracy. You know how so?
1: Well, the right of information uh, is definitely is a quasi constitutional. Uh, right so that was uh it, it is supporting uh our trust in our government it's it's you know Canadians are asking information because they want to know how decisions are being made where their money is being spent why a policy uh, a certain policy is taken uh, and we saw that with COVID we need to know like what what's going on with uh, with with all this is this, this is these decisions being taken and if you don't have the the you know once you know that information you can decide for yourself whether you trust the government or you you agree with the decisions or sometimes you don't agree but at least you you know what it's coming from. So this is why um, it is a, a very important right, and it is at the pillar of our democracy. It is to make sure that our government is hold it uh, is made accountable for those decisions and policies that are they are deciding for us.
0: Yeah, you know, following on from that, there there is at times a perception that the system is. You know, largely the sandbox of journalists and some members of parliament. We sometimes see people suggesting that that that's really who's making use of the system. So uh, it's not one that's more broadly used. But you suggested at the committee that that, in fact, wasn't the case. You know, what does the data tell us about who is making these requests?
1: Well that that was exa- exactly um my perception as well when I became commissioner I thought for sure I was going to be dealing with mainly with lawyers or journalists or or uh historians asking or even employees of the federal government because that's a big thing that people say you know our employees are using this system to obtain information about themselves or about uh, a, a grievance but but I was surprised to see that 65% of all access requests is actually made by the public in general and uh, to me that's that was amazing because that's that shows me that uh, our Canadians are aware of that right they're using it they continue to uh, to ask for more information and um, yeah it's uh, I think it was it's a good it's a good system except that we need to be able to respond to those access requests now and so far we're not doing so so well that way.
0: Yeah, let's drill down a little bit on on just how frankly broken sometimes it seems the system is. You know, the the current government, Trudeau government emphasized access to information and transparency before it was elected in 2015. So these issues have been around quite clearly for a long time predating this government. But you told the committee that really nobody is doing great. Large numbers of delays, missed deadlines, and then obviously the complaints we were just talking about. Can you describe what that what it's looking like right now on the ground within many of the various government departments?
1: Yeah, like you say, like everybody is having is having difficulties right now, meaning the uh, timelines that are. Um, Required by the Act, the 30-day day time limit, or even the extensions that are take, they are taking. So that's why I was saying that we're getting more complaints. But um, the pandemic definitely didn't help. But what happened is it just made things worse. That you know problems that already existed before the pandemic. So um, what we're seeing is that there's not enough resources put into access. The priority is not uh, in terms of, of transparency, uh, it's not a priority right now. And uh, what we need is more people, more resources, not just money, like more trained employees and, and also a, uh, a culture of um, uh, providing the information instead of hiding the information within the government. We need also better uh, information management. Uh, there's a lot to do. Um, but, um, and, and just like, I I also, we need, we need better laws and we need, you know, uh, uh, the statute, it definitely needs to be reviewed. And right now uh, there's a a review that has been, uh, started by the, our treasury board, uh, with respect to the current access to information act, because it's, it is 35 years old and, uh, uh, some changes has been made, but not a lot of changes. So there's, uh, this review we're, Really uh, hoping to to get some changes done by the and hoping uh, to have some good changes there. But I, I'm I'm looking at the act as it is, and if we were to respect the current statute, it would be even you know a good start. Like you know, if we could just uh, apply the act the way it's written, um, I would be very happy. <laughs>
0: I think, and, and certainly it sounds like a lot of requesters would as well. You know, you, you mentioned resources and some of the exceptions and things like that. And I want to come back to that, you know, moment. But at the ethics Committee, you talked about leadership and, and, and you were pretty candid, I thought, in saying that you thought there was a lack of leadership. Can can you talk a little bit, bit about that? Where where do you think this leadership needs to come from? Where, where are the failures right now in terms of, of leadership within the various government departments around access to information?
1: Well, the, the act requires the head of the federal institutions to be accountable for applying the, 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 the statute appropriately. So I really think it's, that's where we, we need to start. The leaders of our federal institutions, they must set the example. They have to provide clear direction. Uh, they have to update their guidance on how information is to be managed, uh, especially now in a v- virtual, you know, a hybrid environment. I'm really concerned about the way that uh, decisions are being recorded and whether they are recorded uh, now that people are working uh, mainly from home. So this is something that they need to hear from their leader. This is important. Uh, public servants needs to know that it's uh, access to information is, is not a distraction from their job. It's a it's a responsibility that they have as a public servant. It's a legal obligation, and they need to hear that from you know the. If your leader believes in it and shows by their action, uh, the rest of the group will 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 follow. Uh, we see just within our investigations that those institutions that take it seriously uh, are doing much better. They are uh, investing, they are trying new technologies, uh, they are asking for briefing notes every two weeks to find out where you know the access is. Um, and how they're doing, and, and um, so I think we definitely need those type of leaders that um, that show these examples and really uh, talk about it in a way that, again, will lead the culture to change from an open and transparent government and not a secret, like uh, a lot of people believe that uh, our government is.
0: Yeah, no, and, and I think that when you get these kinds of delays That that helps fuel some of those perceptions. Uh, I would say so too are the sheer number of exceptions that exist within the law. And that maybe speaks a little bit to where we might benefit from some reforms so very often there for those that don't use the system you end up with either redactions or the unavailability of documents altogether and and i wanted to touch on a few first some of the, some of the kinds of documents or, or information that falls outside of the law altogether cabinet confidences ministers prime minister's office they seemingly all fall outside the law I, I, I think quite literally just yesterday got a response from an ATIP officer saying, "Well, don't you really just want to exclude cabinet confidences because you're never going to get them anyway?" <laughs> um, what should we be done? What, should, what do you think should be done about you know this large trove of information that really does, in many instances, speak to how these, how various government decisions are being made and yet appear to be scoped out altogether?
1: Yeah. And, and those two examples that you just provided are two that could not be fixed without having actually an edis- legislative amendments because they are excluded from our current access to information act. So one uh, of my recommendations during this current review of the, uh, of the act is to, uh, to make sure that cabinet confidence are not anymore excluded, but actually becomes an exemption so that they can be reviewed by my office right now um, you're not getting it, but we are also not seeing it at my office. So it's very difficult for me to confirm that what the document that you're not getting is actually a cabinet confidence. And I would really much be, I would love to be able to, to confirm to our Canadians, you know, when there's a a cabinet, a a true cabinet confidence that is in our possessions that uh, it's uh, that the, the act has been applied appropriately uh unfortunately because my office is not entitled to um to review those type of documents we have to rely on the uh the words of the institutions that uh, that that some pages in in like a record is is a cabinet confidence we're one of the only country in the commonwealth uh, uh, countries that don't have an independent review of cabinet confidence uh, information. Um, So I really think that it's something that we need to change the act to allow uh, an actual uh, authority to review those type of documents. And on top of that, the PMOs, the minister's office, they're not currently subjected to the act. That means that you cannot access records from those offices. And, uh, it, and again, it's another re- uh, recommendations that uh, we made uh, or I made it through my submissions to uh, Treasury Board because why? Why are these documents and these decisions and, and discussions and communication and records not uh, available to Canadians? They're running our country. There are people that we elected. Uh, and often it's really difficult to know what a document, whether the document comes from the uh, minister's office or from, you know, the, the department itself. And there's a lot of communication between the two. So it would be a lot more easier to, to treat and process as those uh, those documents as well if they were subjected to the act.
0: Yeah, no, I no, I, I, absur- I I unsurprisingly absolutely agree. And certainly in my own experience, <laughs> Uh, in filing some of these requests, you often find that so much of the decision making now shifts more and more to the minister's office, uh, and that falls, of course, as you just mentioned, outside of of the scope of this. And so it, it really creates a, a scenario whereby you could sometimes see some of what's taking place, but oftentimes a lot of it is just outside altogether. Uh, mm-hmm. Similarly, that it's not the only, of course the only thing that that's outside. There are a couple of of other exceptions that play a pretty key role in limiting access to especially decision making type things one has to do especially coming out of justice with solicitor client privilege and i noted that when you appeared there was a discussion that it's seemingly almost always invoked or very frequently invoked with justice and you seem to suggest that it was wrongly applied about a quarter of the time i think you i think you you said it somewhat differently you said it's properly applied 75% of the time but of course the math suggests <laughs> that that tells us that one in four uh, instances when you've had a chance to take a look at it, uh, in fact, it's not properly applied. You know, is that right? And and what can we be doing about that?
1: Well, I don't, I don't know for sure that it's one out of four, but I know it happens uh, and we continue to be able to uh, uh, recommend or, or, you know, lead that, that our investigation leads to more information uh, being released under that was initially uh, protected by Section 23, the like Client Privilege section of the Act. But the reason is because uh, some people believe, like some people think that because something is written by a lawyer, it's, it's automatically protected. And you and I know that, we do a lot of work outside of our you know uh, legal profession especially in the government there's a lot of lawyers involved in policy review there's a lot of emails that are being exchanged with colleagues that do not uh, um, contain legal opinions or are not part of a, a live litigation uh, so uh, this is where i think you know there's a lot more um, uh, People need to to be more aware of what really is a legal opinion, and I think some some analysts are worried about you know contesting the lawyers or or, or even like going to that way. So I, we that's one of the the reason, and the other one is um, some old legal opinions are still being protected, even though there is a discretion under section 23 when there's an, a public interest or uh, when you know some some legal opinions that are so old that you kind of wonder why is it still being protected by the government? Why not share it? It's kind of part of our history or, so there's still, um, I think the discretion should definitely be used more often uh, in terms of uh, legal opinions and uh, especially, like I said, for public interest uh, requirements.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of of overuse, the other, exception that you highlighted comes from section 21 on advice and recommendations. Um, How do you see that often being used within the system?
1: Yeah, section 21 is definitely the one exception exemption that is invoked the most by institution. It is discretionary as well. And they can, the institution can, can refuse to disclose under that section any records that contain an advice or recommendations that is developed by an institution or a ministers like uh, of the crown. Uh, it's like, it's so broad. It doesn't provide a lot of ex- uh, example. And uh, one of my recommendation with the uh, the changes to the act would be to provide what is not included in that definition because we see that in other provinces, especially in Ontario has a really good section where it, it gives, you know, what is an advice and what is a recommendation and what it is not. Um, so that would allow a, a more consistent approach and uh, a prob- way more information being uh, uh, disclosed uh, uh, initially instead of having to go through the full complaint system pro- and process uh, to obtain, you know, the factual basis of the advice and the statistics or the, you know, the... Uh, uh, there's sometimes there's a uh, forecast being uh, protected and at the end of the day we we know it's not an advice or recommendation it's it could be the basis of it but um but the uh, atip analyst has has to know the difference between the two and section 21 is definitely one where we need more training and 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 some some changes in the act for for a better use of that
0: Okay, so there are there are opportunities for legal reform that might help fix some of that. Let's actually continue with some of the potential fixes, whether legal or otherwise. Um, I know that you talked first around proactive disclosure. And when you go on webs on government websites, there are references to proactive disclosure, transparency. uh, But quite clearly, more can be done in your view. How could or should this work, especially within the context of the access to information system?
1: um so currently uh, the the access to information Act has a part two uh where it uh, provides a list of things that must be proactively disclosed so it's a legal obligation under the part two of the section and it 's a part that i'm not uh, i don't have any authority over but it you know it's it it has kind of codified the policy that already existed with respect to proactive disclosure so there's a the, you know those are information that the Canadians are are uh, we're, we're asking like, you know, it's mainly expenses of our institutions or, but what I'm, what I'm trying to encourage now is like beyond the proactive disclosure, institutions should look at voluntary disclosing information that our Canadians are asking uh, over and over. I like the idea of like um, in the States, uh, when an institution received three of the same requests they have a policy where they have to provide that information automatically after three requests. I'm sure if our institutions were to do that, if looking at their backlog and and see what kind of information is always being requested and providing that on their uh, website instead of waiting for an access request, uh, it would definitely improve our system. It would remove those type of requests from the access. Like I really think access requests should be the last resort, you know? Our Canadians should not be having to pay $5 to obtain something that should be provided through uh, other means. And um so I, that's where proactive disclosure or, or voluntary disclosure, call it, you know, wh- what you want, but it's just giving that information that people are asking because they want to know, uh, again, about COVID, about uh, the the, the contracts. Some of those information should be uh, accessible through other means than access requests.
0: Yeah, I don't know. That's a fabulous point. It brings to mind for me actually an access request from this past year that that I received involving a government consultation on online harms. And I must admit, I was stunned that the government didn't proactively release the submissions that it had received. And it literally took months and an access to information request to ultimately get it. And I couldn't couldn't understand the thinking behind that, you know, it's a public consultation after all, uh, and certainly your, your solution in those kind of bigger cases, and then even on instances where there's a clear public interest would, would quite, you know, would help alleviate stress on the system and respond to a clear public interest. That stress on the system quite clearly, you know, falls to your office too. You know, you talked about record numbers of complaints. Do you have the kind of resources that you need to be able to, to deal with these issues?
1: Unfortunately, we don't. Um, and it's always a, a battle because, uh, you know, you, you, you try to, to manage with the, the money you have and based on the statistics that you know. And so currently we are, uh, my office is funded to, to close approximately 4,400 cases per year. So that's kind of where we, we, you know, situated ourselves a couple of years ago when we, we did our, our budget requests and we were fi- figuring that we could probably, you know, do really well with, uh, with that. Funding, and then we get 45% increase of complaints in in one in one six months, and then all of a sudden it it throws out everything that you you've been uh, managing. Um, we are closing more and more files, but we had to. Completely allocated all our, our finances into our investigation program, which uh, is not sustainable because now everybody else is struggling. Uh, I'm trying to to, to publish more uh, reports because I find that that has a huge impact on the way that we we close files. I'm trying to uh, you know to, to to do outreach, so um, I need I need more money to close more files. And clearly, uh, right now we're in the in the processes of of asking for more resources. But like any other institutions, I have to go through the the full submission, you know, to Treasury Board and Finance to uh, to try to convince them that uh, my program is worth investing into. So, uh, it's a you know, it's 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 a frustrating game. Um, and it shouldn't be a game. It, it should be really like I'm an agent in Parliament and uh, I have 7000 complaints to close per year and I, I need more uh, funding for that. The other uh, vicious circle in, in that uh, scenario is that even if the government allows me to obtain more investigators and, and more resources, I'm still struggling in getting information from the institutions because they're not investing in their uh, access to information units, and they're the same people re- responding to requests and complaints. So I don't want to overwhelm them with, you know, more investigators. So we—it's a—if they give to me, they have to also invest, and in it's investment in the uh, access system internally, so that we can work together and. And close as many files as we can uh, with the people that we have.
0: Okay, so more investment is the clear need. You've already mentioned a couple of potential legislative reforms. I know at times when officials are asked about the access information system, they point to some of the reforms they already had in C58, which was really touted as a fix. You know, was it? Uh, in your view, uh, are there elements there that actually have made a difference?
1: Well the C58 was a bill that was uh uh introduced before I was appointed so uh, as you you know as you can imagine I became the new commissioner and I had to deal with responding to the changes that were uh, recommended by the government to enact that I hadn't had a chance to really, you know, apply myself like fully, but I did. I, so it was trying to, and it was already in front of committees at parliament in parliament. So it, we were trying to fix a plane while it was flying. You know, <laughs> it was kind of we knew it was not right. It was in, going in the right directions, but there was a lot of things that were still uh, needed to be to be modified. So. We requested a few changes, which we got, not everything we wanted uh, was done, but I had to focus on the priorities and and, uh, the good thing about this C58, it it did give me uh, the authority to issue orders instead of only making recommendations. So my office for 35, so former commissioners, the only authority they had was to recommend a remedy to institutions. So recommend a timeline or recommend disclosure. Uh, That was very frustrating. And uh, if the institution didn't follow the recommendations, you had to go to court to get the judge to order disclosure. So now the uh, commissioner, myself, has the authority to issue orders. And that has a really big impact on um, trying to, like uh, when when an institution knows an order is coming, Seems to be uh, a lot easier to 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 negotiate and and collaborate. So there's that definitely has an impact. The other thing that the C58 brought is the publication, the right to publish uh, reports. Uh, again, for 35 years, the uh, Office of the Information Commissioner was not allowed to publish any results of their investigation. So we're missing 35 years of juris, you know. Uh, I call it jurisprudence but really precedents and 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 cases that we can refer Canadians to or institutions to to provide them with guidance and and examples of how we apply the act so now finally since 2019 we've been able to publish reports and it it has ha- had a, a positive impact again in in just consistency of application and and a better understanding of the position of the office on some uh, some issues so those are, are good good uh, changes that were brought by c58 um, but definitely there's more to be to be to come and that's why i made that the submissions in january uh, 2021 with the new review uh with a, a number of other recommendations we, which we already talked about a bit uh, earlier
0: yeah i know it is good to hear that there you know i guess there have been some steady progress although i must admit the you know the order making power and its effectiveness rings a lot of bells when I if with respect to how with my time focusing on privacy, where there's been long calls for order making power uh, for your mm-hmm. counterpart in the privacy commissioner's office. And it's one thing to make the case that the private sector isn't responsive to legislation unless they face the prospect of, of an order. To think that our own government or government departments may not be responsive to their obligations under the law unless faced with an order. And that has the uh, is a bit of an accelerant to to change the perspective is quite frankly maddening. Uh, you know, this is uh, mm-hmm. public servants. Is our government? It shouldn't require an order to comply with the law.
1: No, it it, it shouldn't. But um and and I have to admit, like we don't use the order making power as often as maybe people think. Like eighty five percent of our investigations are resolved informally. So we, we, we are getting results, uh, as and we are trying to get results for Canadians as quickly as possible. And the, the order making power is kind of the, the last resort, but it's sometimes, it's something we need because we may agree to disagree. Like you, you, understand, you know, like you put two lawyers in one room and you have three opinions. So you can have two different people looking at the act and the facts and the documents and we, we just look at each other and we agree to disagree. So I, at that point, I don't have a problem issuing an order. And if they go to court, because at that point, it is the institution that has to decide to go to court if they don't follow the order, which is it kind of switched the onus now. Instead of so for a recommendation, we had to go to court if we wanted to force them to, to respect it. Now they have to take the order into court to, um, to if they refuse to follow it, which it, it, it's a nice. Um, The onus is on them now to to prove to the court that their application of the act is the right one. And uh, that's that's also helpful.
0: Okay, you know, let's conclude with this. You've highlighted some potential changes uh, where some of the pain points are right now. Uh, I think there's still a, a feeling of hopelessness, at least for some who are involved, not enough money in the system. It's not a political priority, sometimes not a cultural priority within departments. And as, as you've highlighted, based on the numbers, it, it feels like running faster and faster just to stay in the same place. It often seems like things are getting worse. So, you know, what more or what can Canadians who, as you've mentioned, are the major users of this system uh, be doing? Is there anything that the public can be doing to try to, to change this dynamic? Or is it up to the, the government departments and others to sort of fix its own house?
1: Well, first, I think our institutions clearly need to understand that access to information is not a service, it is a legal obligation. And that's something that we need to really uh, uh, train our new public servants from the beginning, that it is part of their obligation, it is part of their responsibilities. And, um, they can definitely help, uh, respond to requests in a timely manner if they were to believe in it, believe in transparency and take it seriously from the start up to our, our leaders. That's definitely the, the, the side of the institutions. And, uh, but I, I do believe Canadians have a, a side to play as well or, or because what we see sometimes is unreasonable requests. And I think if we had, if our requesters were paying attention to the, the type of request that they make uh, and, and talk to the ATIP analyst to really pinpoint what they're looking for and scope their requests as much as possible, because we want to give them the information in a timely manner, um, that would as help as well. Because imagine if you have one or two very unreasonable, broad, vague requests, that could Take all of the uh, ATIP units' uh, um, time and energy to resolve, and then you have all the other requesters who are being uh, or are suffering as a result. So it is a, you know, I think requesters definitely have a, a part to play, <laughs> but um, but the main uh, the main uh, obligation is on our leaders, and they have a role to to play in making sure that their institution is upholding the right of access and promoting transparency, clearly.
0: So more can be done across the board, but it it comes down to leadership. You know, uh, Commissioner Maynard, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And as I think demonstrated through discussion, thanks for your leadership. Uh, in in raising awareness of this issue and trying to hold it to ensure that government lives up to uh, what what, as you suggested off the top, are really core issues around freedom and democracy.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And yes, I will continue to uh, encourage the best practices in access to information.
0: That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions or other feedback, write to LawBytes at P.O.Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBytesPod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBytes podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.